Welcome. All right. So we're here. Um, this is Joe Samaj McDowell with Le Geopolitical Pivot. Again, this is like, this is actually the first episode of the year. Holy hell. So we're just going to dive right into it. So we know that there's a lot of shenanigans, for lack of better words, that's going on in Eastern Europe. And rather than the usual me belaboring points all by myself, which can be very lonely, um, I have three good friends with me uh, from the Institute of World Politics who I'm going to let them um, introduce themselves and talk a little bit about their backgrounds if they want to, um, as this is a, how can I say this, uh, a very serious, I guess, geopolitical um, trend that's kind of going on before us, and there's a lot of complexities, historical analysis that can be done, but I think it's really important to kind of know where we're where we are now, how we got there, and where it could potentially go. So today we have Daniel. We have I mean you say Aubrey first because the other one he he's looking at me weird and I don't <laughs> Ryan, I don't like how you're looking at me. <laughs> um and then we're gonna have Brian kind of go at the end of introductions. So Daniel, all you. Uh, my name is Dan Clegg. Um, I'm a student for the uh, security, sorry, the um, intelligence and strategy program at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, prior to that, I graduated the College of the Holy Cross with a double major in uh, political science and Russian studies. I've uh, also studied abroad in Russia and worked on a thesis um, in 2016 detailing Russian covert action and active measures within the United States and within Europe as a whole. Uh, so that's kind of my area of focus is generally Russian active measures, covert action, uh, and how they use those to uh, promote their policy worldwide. Dang. And then he just disappears from the screen. <laughs> 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 the measure, that was the active measure right there. He was just like, boom, and gone. Um, right. Yeah, it's fine. It's okay. Uh, Aubrey, you're next. Hi everyone, I'm, I'm Aubrey. Uh, I also attend the Institute of World Politics with Dan and Brian and Samaj. And uh, I'm also doing the same uh, studies as Dan over here. And uh, so I attended Virginia Commonwealth University and I have two degrees and one in Homeland Security, the other in history. Really how I got interested in Russia is just through taking Russian history courses and I ended up taking a full year of Russian of my last year of my undergrad. I sort of kept up a bit after then, but I more so have just enjoyed looking at the background of Russia through a historical lens. And it's really guided me to become more so of a I guess, chiseled Russia analyst throughout just my years looking at different issues. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I got. Watching Karasho, watching Karasho. And then, oh yeah, <laughs> see? And then now you. Brian. <laughs> See, look, if you're not first, when well, no, Ricky Bobby said, if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> Go ahead, Brian, floor is yours. Anyway, all right, my name is Brian Rudis. Uh, I study also at IVP in the same studies that uh, Aubrey and Daniel Clegg are in. Um, I have a bachelor's in international relations at King University in New Jersey. Um, I'd say um, any experience I have is I used to to help, I used to work with um, Museum of Russian Icons in uh, Massachusetts, where I used to help with a few of their re 
research projects, generally, especially with Russia and its past history. And um, right now, for what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to learn more about Russia's grand strategy and being able to understand its motives for what policies it puts abroad and why it has the op- it does the operations that it does, albeit cyber, covert, or even just overt military actions. So I'd say, yeah, that's my background. All right. You're three. Russian fanatics here. Well, we love that. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I mean, so here we are in 2022. Um, and just the, the recent, over the recent days, just a lot of things that are just unraveling quickly um, you, between continual Russian military conventional buildup with the uh, Ukrainian border, but also the the prioritizing of asymmetric warfare um not just by vladimir putin himself but also his right hand guy valerie garazimov um at least since you know 2008 uh, with the georgian war so um really this is pretty much going to be an open discussion on really how we got here um then granted you know you it'll take many episodes to talk about the history between russia and ukraine like that's a whole podcast in itself um but just opening up to to anyone where would you think the best point in russian ukrainian history that could really highlight or i guess people could start at to start to look at to see where we are now would it be under joseph stalin where you had the um the, the massive famine would it be uh, the gifting of Crimea uh, to Ukraine? Would it be even before then, I guess? I think uh, in order to really sort of understand these sort of dueling perspectives here um, and, and understand where Russia is coming from, you kind of have to go back even further to Kievan Rus, um, where, you know, Kiev was actually the original capital of what uh, at the time was known as Rus, of, you know, the Russian territories. Um, and so for a lot of Russians, they don't see Ukraine as a sovereign country. They see it as an extension mm-hmm. of their own historical uh, geopolitical holdings. Gotcha. Um... And then, of course, you know, for the Ukrainians, I mean, any, any one of the things that you mentioned um, is a pretty good understanding of the Ukrainian perspective on Russia is that every time... Ukraine has not been given control over their own uh, fate and their own territory. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of Ukrainians have died. Yeah. Yes. Um, do we know, I mean, estimates as far as, like, how many people died under, you? how many Ukrainians died under Stalin's famine? Um, is there, like, ballpark 5 million, 10 million, 20 million? Do we, do we know it for, I guess, in particularly... Um, because I do know it was, you know, it was a man-made famine, um, and it was... Yeah, the, the whole little more, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, it was... They say it started around 1932, estimates put it at about 3.9 to 4 million. Oh, Jesus. So, yeah, definitely uh, not not exactly a run-of-the-mill genocide, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty big one. Right, it's not a casual genocide at all. Yeah. Did you say, Albert? Uh, just piggy, piggybacking off of what Dan was saying, um... 
because Brian and I talked about this uh, last week. We were talking about just the the name Ukraine. It means, at least in the Slavic languages, it means border region. Mm-hmm. And in the Russian psyche, like Ukraine has always been theirs, and they see it as a way to. And at least the way that I'm interpreting it, as they see it as just theirs to reclaim. Mm-hmm. That's it's uh, that's how I've sort of viewed it. Mm-hmm. Ryan, is 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 that the correct way of viewing it? Yeah. So yeah, I remember in that conversation we had this conversation. Um, I remember we were talking. I remember I gave him another example of the Falklands War in the '80s, where um, people were wondering why is Argentina these small islands in the South, South Atlantic that seem to have no strategic or any resources to speak of. The reason why for that was because Argentina, since for every Argentinian, I'd say since birth, they have been taught in schools by and through their culture that those islands were theirs. And they, that was their sovereign territory and they viewed the English presence on there, no matter where, how long ago it started, as a violation and as an invasion or colonization. And in some ways, you can compare that even to what's going on right now with Ukraine and, Ru- Ukraine and Russia. Russia sees what's going on in Ukraine with Ukraine trying to push closer to the West mm-hmm. as it's lo- possibly losing its sovereign territory to hostile forces. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an incursion on a buffer zone, really, for them. I mean, you know, Ukraine is. It, uh, it represents for Russia not only a part of their history, but um, something that separates them from the invading hordes of the, of the West mm-hmm. from their possessions. Russia's been invaded so many times, yep. generally unsuccessfully. Uh, they kind of have this perception that you know it's not a matter of if the next invasion comes, it's a matter of when. And they want right. to make sure that they've got those buffer zones intact mm-hmm. to wear out any invading forces before they can reach Moscow. And taking back off of that, actually, where we had another conversation first met was uh, in Russian there is no word word for safety yeah no word for safety there's words that come from the English derivative and usually but any other word that's close to it it's just saying we are it's safe here for now it's very temporary Um, you know it's it's just one example you get compound words that say um, not dangerous rather than there being an organic word that just means safety or safe mm-hmm. place. The words just refer to the fact that there's no danger here, there's not danger here, or there's not danger now, or there is a force protecting us. And mm-hmm. There's no organic word that says you are just naturally organically safe. Um, it's always some kind of... Okay, that makes sense. hybrid word referring to you cannot be safe in this Russian psyche unless you are either protected mm-hmm. or surrounded by protection or you have made the danger go away. Okay, you know, that makes sense looking at their um, that makes sense looking at their um, especially if you look at the 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 history of like Russia's expansions um, and how it was always intended to essentially protect their their core I guess like origin region um, I mean even after you know the Genghis Khan and um, the Mongols, their invasions, and then um, Russia's conflicts with the Prussians and the Teutonic, it was the Teutonic Knights or Teutonic Order. Um, 
even with the Ukrainians, the Lithuanians, um, who, by the way, were the aggressors back back in the day, centuries ago, it was the Lithuanians that were more, which is interesting. Um, they were centuries ago. They were seeking expansions. Um, so I, I, I can. It's just fascinating to see historical influences on the the development of of grammar. Really, where you know you stated that you know they don't have a word for for safe because I mean I guess their geopolitical mindset, Russians or at least Russian politicians and policymakers they don't feel safe. Um, but then that raises the question of well, what will it take for them to feel safe? Yeah, it's. It, I think that that's something that even um, those policymakers don't necessarily know. Um, mm-hmm. I think the only thing that they do kind of realize, insofar as that's concerned. Um, and of course, so much of that policy is dependent on the whims of Vladimir Putin himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Vladimir Putin is, he's, he's, he's two really significant things geopolitically. The first one is five foot seven, and the second one is. Hey, yeah, I'm five seven. Us <laughs> <laughs> um, short kings no, are showing you how to do it. <laughs> you're a striking and a firm five foot seven. Vladimir Putin Thank is you. Uh, more of a, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs>
the, the I mean, he still is technically like the kingmaker in Russian politics, where he, he was untouchable, and he proved that when he ran as an independent. Like it doesn't matter who I run as or what I run as, I've essentially molded the modern Russian society since '99. Um, I don't need the United Russia Party. You need me. Um, we can't even we can't even really talk too much about um, his domestic political power without talking about Vladislav Zerkov. Right, right, right. Um, but I think it's also interesting, though, with Putin, um, similar in a way to American presidents, where sometimes their opinion, the opinion polls or their popularity um, is heavily, well, can be heavily determined by the levels of success in foreign policy and defense. Um, Especially when it for, for the Russians, if you look at the geographic makeup of the European continent from the Ural Mountains to at least Berlin, it's just flat. And so it's it's interesting where it seems like for the Russians, their Achilles heel is that Eurasian plain. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's the thing is for all for a lot of Russian history until they expanded to Siberia, it was they are on the Eurasian. Where it stretches all the way from Germany to the Urals, and that does help to reinforce what we were stating earlier with how Russia basically it's a huge conduit for invasions. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to invade that area um, until temperatures drop. Um, you know, they really they really thrive, which I think kind of is you know a nice segue into discussion of what's going on right now because right. Um, you know with uh, with the Ukraine situation again time is of the essence. Um, Russia relies very, very heavily on their tank and artillery units yep. and on direct fire support um, on a tactical level. Mm-hmm. And when the, the when the Ukrainian ground starts to thaw, it's going to get really muddy, it's going to mm-hmm. get really pushy, uh, the swamps are going to open back up, it's going to be much harder for them to rapidly advance that infrastructure. Right. You know, right now, in theory, in the next week or so, if they wanted to forces that they have in Belarus right now to Kiev, they could do it in two and a half hours. Right. Um, there's minimal opposition in that area because, incidentally, that's where the Chernobyl exclusion zone is. So, about half of the distance they'd have to cross is mostly unguarded, mostly unbanded Ukrainian territory. You're not encountering significant Ukrainian forces in that area that are going to be domestic resistance forces. Mm-hmm. You're not encountering significant border guards. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that creates a real, real weak spot. There's something I actually want to add with that involving Belarus, too, is because there's been a lot, for anyone who's been looking on social media, albeit Twitter or TikTok, Facebook, whatever. (laughs) TikTok is news nowadays, man. What has been happening in the past week, there's been a lot of videos popping on Twitter and TikTok of Russian troop trains going, not going through Russia specifically, but going into Belarus. Yep. As well as even parking lots being used for military vehicles and convoys going through highways. And a lot of them are being documented specifically like about 18, 20, 40 kilometers from the Ukrainian border with Belarus mm-hmm. specifically. That's yeah. something that sounds it's interesting. Impressive. Especially because when you think about Lukashenko, Belarus and Lukashenko for the longest time, if you remember any of the reports from 2014 onward generally supported Ukraine and even supports yeah. some Western yeah, measures. Yeah, I remember that. Hasn't switched, and I feel like that has to do with the protests that happened in 2020. Right. Yeah. I agree. 
Um, and to go off of what Daniel was talking about as far as the tactical maneuvering, um, they all, um, Putin also uh, deployed Tauchka ballistic missiles um, as well that could easily hit Kiev. Um, it's, it, this isn't just like, and then a few days ago, Russia and Belarus has started to conduct a um, military exercise. And then a few days later, Russia, China, and Iran are doing uh, military exercises as well um, in the northern Indian Ocean. Um, and in some cases, they call it for um, like anti-piracy, etc. Um, right. And I'm like, hmm, that's a lot of piracy that you're... Uh, a lot. That's, <laughs> that's a third of their fleet right there. No, literally. We were going to say... Well, uh, I, was, I was reading uh, just before this, like before our podcast here, uh, I was reading an article from The Guardian, mm -hmm. and it was, it was about this, this lone Ukrainian soldier. He's at least 26 miles away from the border right now with Russia. And he's saying that he can hear just tanks just constantly rumbling off day in, day out. Uh, and this is like just at least over 25 miles away from where he's at. But it just, it reminds me, it just eerily reminded me of the night of June 21st, 1941, when the Germans were just about to launch their attack in the Soviet Union. And there were accounts from Soviet soldiers uh, saying that, you know, they could hear just the the tanks, the panzers rumbling up in the east, uh, in the west, sorry, uh, that and that something big was about to happen. And I think just given the uh, amount of time that it's taking for the Russians to, to get ready, uh, something's just telling me that, you know, they have all this equipment, they have all these troops, everything just seems like it's ready to go. And it just seems like Putin now is just waiting for the right moment to yeah. to cross and go into a bay. And sometimes in warfare, you don't always have that. But it seems like Putin is just, he's praying that something like that will happen. And I think that's... And I think that's... Um, as much as we, um, you know, talk about Putin, one thing that I will admit is that tactically he has positioned himself in in Eastern Europe as he, he is right now he has three fronts possible with Ukraine. Not even just conventional that we're talking about. We're also gonna talk about the unconventional nations of having already proxies in Ukraine. So on top of that you have like a hundred thousand or over a hundred thousand person of conventionals bordering Ukraine. You also still have the Kaliningrad um, region where you know he can literally do anti anti area access denial um, with S three hundreds, S four hundreds, if he wanted S five hundreds, Tochka and Iskander uh, ballistic uh, ballistic missiles, etc. Even now, possibly potentially even utilizing um, hypersonic defense mechanisms. Which, granted, we don't know if they work per se, as it's not hasn't really been battlefield tested. But the probability of a successful usage is also very uh, concerning at least to the United States national, at least national security interest wise, because we don't really have a capable defense mechanism for that. What are you going to say, Vern? The one other thing that should also be mentioned, we're talking about conventional like weaponry and equipment and soldiers and all that, but the one thing we also need to think about is the fact that Russia, Russia's cyber capabilities yep. has already started cyber attacks on Ukraine. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny when uh, when I started at IWP, I remember I wrote an article uh, about Russian hybrid warfare in Ukraine. This is involving like what happened in 2014, 2015, and the main things I talked about involved use of use of cyber attacks, and even we have sources from uh, not from the General is uh, Yurasimov, who is usually considered the main person who advocated for the use of cyber attacks, but also mm-hmm. another general in 1995 by the name of Mahmoud Yarev. And he wrote, If war came tomorrow, if war came tomorrow, he argued that the creation of new technologies would be a he, well, actually, well, I just realized it's a very different thing. Let's go. <laughs> but I mean, it's that. still the, part, the importance <laughs> of technology. <laughs> We're going to take this commercial break, people. <laughs> yeah, but how, I was trying to say the thing he mentioned was how with the sophistication information warfare and electronic warfare and using system broadcasts, you could be used to psychologically, ideologically biased material to be provocative as well as to demoralize their enemy. And that is something we saw in 2014. A lot of the Russian media... A lot of the Russian media during those times was used specifically to not just to bless, oh, we are right in whatever we do. No, they were using it to convince the populations mm-hmm. in Ukraine to divide against her and even convince some of the Russians who were living in, in Donetsk, Lugansk, Crimea to say, oh my God, this new government that's coming in that says it's pro-Western yep. is actually out to kill me. And that's why you saw so many people in Crimea praising the Russian, Russian soldiers that they are surrounding Ukrainian military yeah. bases. Yeah, I mean, it helps when you're able to stage false flag attacks inside a country like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victor Savorov, which um, is a pseudonym, um, wrote a brilliant book on uh, the Spetsnaz and how their operations are conducted back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still very relevant today. In fact, towards the end of the book, he details um, how an entire operation would be carried out in theory if Russia was taking over another country, launching and mind you, this book was written, again, back in the 80s. It says the first thing they would do is they would use Aeroflot um, to, they would basically fly Aeroflot planes into the airports, and they would seize the airports behind enemy lines. And we saw that at the Donetsk airport. That was the first, that was one of the first battles um, of the Ukrainian, the initial Ukrainian attack. Um, very cool. Um, and the, the next thing that you would see is you would see attacks on the power grid. You would see attacks on inside the country, uh, false flag attacks against groups of the civilians. Um, and one thing that he actually did mention in there that I found fascinating was, um, you know, specifically if they were launching, this, the example he was given was an attack against the United States, one thing they would do is they would try to take over several broadcast stations, and they would fly a drone, mind you, the 80s were talking about this, they would fly an explosive drone into the White House, and then use one of those cable channels to report that the U.S. president had been killed and the vice president was taking over. They'd get someone using deep fake technology to essentially look like or duplicate the vice president of the United States, giving an address saying that there's been an invasion, that the enemy are wearing uniforms of our own forces in order to blend in. So if you see forces wearing that uniform, do not do what they're told and even attack them if you have to. The goal would be to get uh, Americans who are willing to believe that to start shooting at their own uh, police and military forces in the country while the invasion was ongoing and not knowing who was who. Um, 
Now, again, a Russian invasion of mainland United States is kind of a fantasy, but uh, certainly not a fantasy of mine. I'll add that much. But um, that's the kind of thing that they can pull off in Ukraine. You know, a coup like that from the inside. We've seen elements of, of that kind of attack launched um, in the first invasion of uh, Crimea. And I think that with a much larger scale invasion potentially on the horizon now, we could see more of those kinds of tactics getting employed in terms of disinformation and uh, covert operations behind enemy lines. No, absolutely. I mean, the the four um, the four asymmetrical uh, warfare tactics by Russia um, in this book called uh, Three Dangerous Men" by Seth Jones, who's just an amazing author. Um, he says that they Russia utilizes I mean, active measures. Um, asymmetrical warfare, information confrontation, and denial and deception. Um, and, I mean, if you look at just the, not just the scale, but the the targets, at least domestically in the United States, especially during election times, um, what these Russian bots, they, um, they seek to do. I mean, they've been doing this in the United States, really, since the 50s and 60s. I mean, you have the you know, trying to support the Black Panther Party and also the Ku Klux Klan in some cases, um, trying to drive a wish to start a race war, or per, uh, provoking the conspiracy theory that CIA was the one that killed JFK. Um, so now take that into take that into perspective of what they've been able to do within the United States and just only really see the magnitude that they're able to do in a country that doesn't have the same level of sophisticated, and say, technological strategic infrastructure as the United States look at Ukraine where you know there you know you have Russian pi uh, energy pipelines that go through Ukraine and every year or so Russia always likes to remind Ukraine oh winter is very much near and you do need our gas um, we've seen Belarus essentially do uh, try to do the same thing well, not try it they did actually do it um, regarding their um, the, the energy resources uh, via pipelines that travel through Belarus into Ukraine. Um, I think another thing that we also have to talk about is, well, how, just how far uh, Putin could essentially go with an invasion in Ukraine, being as though Ukraine is not part of NATO. They're also not really part of the European Union, so it really comes up to the willing, um, voluntary, uh, I guess, obligations of European countries as well as the United States to really defend um Ukraine. Would Russia, would Putin seek all of Ukraine? Would he stop at the, the Dnieper River? Which is, I mean, if you take the Dnieper, you can essentially effectively cut Ukraine out of the Black Sea, uh, which will essentially destroy the rest of of, uh, of Ukraine, especially with the, where the, the Russian ethnic population um, is primarily located in the south, southeast, and uh, eastern Ukraine. So would it just be at the Dnieper? Or do, could we potentially see um, Putin try to seize all of Ukraine, and if it's all of Ukraine, what would that implication be for, um, for for Europe? I mean, if you take that into consideration, who's to say that you know Erdogan won't say, "Oh, well, you know, you did this to Ukraine. I would try it in, for northern Syria," or you see China's like, "Oh, you know, you took Ukraine. That's going to further embolden us with Taiwan, etc., 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 etc." I was going to say that's probably the main question that's going on right now. People are wondering how far is Russia willing to go? Are they just going to go through the Dnieper with um, going, taking over eastern parts of southern Ukraine? They're going to take the entire thing, either to annex it, which 
my view, is highly doubtful, or to just do regime change, mm -hmm. or are they just going to give? Or are they just going to give a bunch of territory to its puppets, Lugansk and Donetsk? Mm -hmm. That's the, I guess is the main question. And as for like if they are willing to do it, I think based on the situation now, um, it's they. It seems like they have a chance. They can. You have recently Germany saying that they don't want Estonia sending military uh, equipment to Ukraine. And the U.S., in the beginning of this entire thing, they said they weren't going to send in combat troops, which I'm guessing is still holding true yep. right now. So it, a lot of signs are saying that the West isn't going to do that much except for just sending a few arms. The only slightly good sign we have seen is the U.K. Spent, sent um, S sent 30 SAS troops, which sounds like they could be for training, but for all They're we know, they probably to evacuate the embassy. That's where they get out there, people. I mean, the U.S. has already evacuated non-essential personnel from their embassy and women and children, and they're starting that Monday. The right. Russians have pulled women and children out of their own embassy in Kiev. Um, they've actually pulled out non-essential personnel starting last week, while reassuring everybody that they weren't doing that for any particular reason. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, everyone, everyone knows, or everyone who knows Russia knows when they say we're doing snap exercises or we're doing special uh, military exercises with an ally, that can very quickly turn into a collaborative military operation, pretty much at the whim of the president saying green light. Right, uh, right. I mean, yesterday, I mean, NATO rejected Russia's uh, security demands to withdraw NATO troops from Bulgaria and Romania. Um, and, you know, we also, with the whole thing that happened in Kazakhstan, okay, now hear me out about that one, okay? I personally think, this is just to me, and I don't care if people say I'm wrong, I have a gut feeling, and I'm pretty sure this is right, okay? I personally think that Putin manufactured an artificial hotspot in Kazakhstan with increasing of energy prices to demonstrate the capabilities of the CTSO within a matter of three days. Yeah. In a matter of three days, you're telling me that over a thousand people were arrested and 182 people were killed. There was this announcement. There was this Kazakh force that was going to get the CTSO. They only made one post, and now they're all gone. Like you. And then at the same time, we also saw videos of Putin sending massive equipment from the Far East to the West at the same time the CTSO um, fiasco was going on. Really, really. Of energy prices, and who dictates energy prices, especially when it comes to that that area, especially when we're dealing with gas pipelines, natural gas pipelines, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, CTSO, former Soviet spaces. I'm wondering about that myself because I even remember hearing it is a. Po I feel like that's a possibility, but also I was hearing a bunch of other rumors. Over, during the time of the protests that there was also a bit of a power struggle between the former leader of Kazakhstan because a lot of his people were in power. Nazarbayev? Yeah. Nazarbayev and then Tokoyev, I think his name is, the new one. I think so. There was some kind of power struggle going on around the same time when the protests were going on. And right when those protests happened, the new president was able to get rid of all of Nazarbayev's people. Mm -hmm. That's the last one we're hearing. It, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, like, I'm saying your thing, your theory does sound like it could be plausible, but I feel like there's other stuff we do need to look right. at. Right. Absolutely. Um, 
And I can see that uh, where the current president wants to essentially remove any remnants of the previous president. Um, and, oh, yeah. You know. Talk about Poroshenko. <laughs> seen under Putin, Putin capitalizes effectively off of these explosions of hotspots around Russia. Yeah, I mean, if he was, uh, if he was actually providing that aid, that would suggest that he was potentially a Russian asset of some kind, which means the timing around all this of him being potentially jailed, of uh, Russia potentially moving in and attempting to, um, you know, attempt to, the idea of one president throwing another president into jail in a democratic society is uh, something that we should do more often. No, I'm kidding. Uh, something that I think for a lot of people, it, uh, it, it, it hollows out their concept of a democratic society. You, know, you don't see democratic presidents, presidents throwing, them, throwing each other in jail all the time. I mean, even looking at like Nixon, looking at uh, you know, plenty of other examples of presidents who've done really messed up stuff and have gotten away with it. Uh, so I'm sure there are plenty of more recent examples that we don't necessarily need to address in this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the fact that Zelensky's, um, Zelensky's uh, presidency is uh, actually taking the steps to uh, jail and try Poroshenko specifically for treason, that is very, very inflammatory. And that, I mean, he probably still has a lot of political supporters within Ukraine. That's a situation that Russia can absolutely take advantage of within the country and potentially try to incite a coup. Which is one of the concerns that the Ukraine the other thing that's interesting with Ukraine situation. I'm going to keep this brief so we don't get too off topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, because, yeah, this next part, if we get too close into it, it's going to just go into Ukrainian politics and then what happens to the geopolitical portion. So, no, the other thing is Ukraine, like Russia, has a lot of oligarchs and they generally run a lot of the show in the country. Zelensky has been trying to fight these people since the start of his presidency, trying to create laws their power. Poroshenko was an oligarch. Yeah. Even before he president, he was an oligarch and he was even supporting some of the corruption that was happening within Ukrainian society. Right. So this could be seen as a part of him trying to in that same fight, but also the question is with these oligarchs is can Russia use them to expand to make sure they hold control over Ukraine, albeit a puppet state or whatever. The, uh, Go ahead, Harvey. There, there was uh, so I was telling Brian and Dan, Dan last week about this. I, I'd written a paper about uh, certain a certain group that 
is made up of former Russian veterans who had fought in Ukraine, and uh, they're very prominent in Russian politics right now. And uh, I think I know that we're kind of speculating about how exactly this war mm-hmm. will take off, but one of the things that I I found out is that they like to target you know civilians and these false flag attacks that you know have been popping up in the news lately. And last year in April, uh, Ukrainian intelligence had foiled uh, one of the plots from these, this group. And the plan was to essentially have members of the group dress in uh, Ukrainian BDUs, mm-hmm. uh, attack civilians in the village of Debeltsiv, and uh, not only civilians, but also uh, rebel militants mm-hmm. uh, who were on religious holiday. And uh, the premise for that was to make it look like, oh, the Ukrainian military is this bloodthirsty uh, monster out for, obviously, uh, to, to kill their own people. And so now we, as Russia, need to come in and provide some sort of peacekeeping force mm-hmm. and show to the world that that we are this genuine uh, force for good. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all of us know that that's, you know, a load, a load of crap, but that's not really uh, exactly what they want to do. But uh, that's one of the premises that that I think will, will happen with this invasion. And uh, especially since it's just out in the news lately. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense, though, because, I mean, for example, um, leading up to the the separatists in the Donbass region, I mean, they utilize the rise of the Ukrainian right sector as far as their propaganda. Um, They're like, oh, look, they're trying to kill Russians or supporters of Russians for this Ukrainian or this pure Ukrainian nationalist uh, state. Um, And it worked. It did. by By showing, I'm blanking on the... I forget what year where there was a um, Ukrainian rights, I think it was the Ukrainian rights sector, they had initiated this major assault on a, um, was it? they were trying to quote unquote remember the Euro maiden. Um, uh, I know about the, it's, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the right group, the Ukrainian rightist groups. That yes. Ukraine, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there are so many very, very far right-wing nationalist groups in eastern Ukraine. Many of them are pro-Russian. Many of them are also pro-Ukrainian. And right. it's crazy. They're all fucking Nazis. Right. Right. They're um. They take their um. They proclaim that the you know the the father of this Ukrainian um. I guess pure state was from Stepan Bandera. Uh, who was a Ukrainian uh, Nazi sympathizer um, in the forties? You look at the Wagner Group. That's you know that's literally named for someone who took the call sign Wagner because he was a neo-Nazi occultist, um, and he was obsessed with Wagner as a staple of uh, Nazi society. The, the musician Wagner. Interesting. Um, so that's where he gets his call sign from. This guy was a you know was and is as far insofar as we're pretty sure that he's still alive. Although his name has been tossed around to a few different people, right. uh, you know, management of the, the Wagner company is a whole complicated thing, especially you know now that they're active and operating in Africa. 
Right. Um, they've just been, you know, they've been getting, they've been getting all over the place. They've been operating in Africa. They've been operating in South America. Mm-hmm. They've been operating in Syria. They've mm-hmm. been operating in Eastern Europe. They've mm-hmm. potentially been operating in Belarus. Mm-hmm. Potentially they were on the ground in Kazakhstan. Um, a lot of places where Wagner has been getting up to no good. Um, yep. Very likely in uh, collaboration with Russian secret intelligence um, or special forces, uh, you know, the GRU. Um, and I think that if we're going to talk about the rise of uh, ultranationalism and neo-Nazism in Eastern Europe and the idea of the, you know, the, the Russian and the Eurasian state, uh, we really have to talk about everybody's favorite crazy Nazi wizard, Alexander Dugan. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Guys, out of his mind, um, but is still a significant driver of Russian foreign policy. Mm-hmm. He has been since the late 90s. I mean, he, he, he literally wrote one of the books that is taught in the uh, you know, the GRU training program, right. the, the, the Russian military intelligence program, focused on active measures and mm-hmm. on how to cause problems in the West. Uh, most of his work is actually not available um, no, not. To, be, to be read in the West. It's very difficult to find, uh, which is probably a good thing because most of it is just, you know, neo-Nazi trash. But <laughs> it's terrifying that this guy has such a stranglehold over Russian politics and this idea of, you know, beating out Western depravity by uniting all of Europe under a Russian flag. And even if for him, that flag doesn't necessarily have to mean Russia taking over countries, it could just mean Russia adding every European major you know, mainland country to their sphere of influence by funding their internal political parties, mm-hmm. wiping out opposition forces when they get too rowdy, flooding them with terrorists from other countries after they bomb those countries and create huge amounts of refugees, you know, mixing in terrorists with the refugees so they can create instability, as we've seen in Belarus, as we've seen in Germany, France, all over the place. Um, you know, they really thrive on creating their chaos. And for him, as far as he's concerned, they don't have to control those countries through anything other than that and the economic stranglehold that they have through the natural gas pipelines. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, we, that we, we see that in Donbass. I mean, we see that in the Donbass region where, like, I mean, they haven't annexed and they have no intentions really to annex. It's just literally is being able to establish these um, geographically based buffer zones um, that are rather aligned to, to Russia rather than a full-on annexation um and i I just find that i find that as an interesting way to essentially establish or you know uh, produce a sphere of influence i mean similar it's kind of like the soviet style where like yeah you're independent per se but you still do what moscow tells you um but this is much more in a modern sense where it's not where the ideology is not really based off of um you know this this grandiose version of communism and means of production ownership etc but it's more so based off of um, the powerful tool of nationalism where you don't have to be russian but if you have the russian mindset per se um and you want to produce a state that's kind of like filled with national pride and and honor and um, you know the strong quote-unquote strong government and law and order um, then Russia will help you if your interests are aligned. And we've, we've seen it. You can actually you can point to the, uh, the import of Russian nationalist propaganda, Eugenian-style Russian propaganda, 
into the United States and Western Europe after 9-11, and in fact, in some ways, in response to 9-11. Um, many of these things circulated on message boards, you know, places like 4chan, iFunny, Tumblr, all over the place, and they would just be these, you know, videos or memes or jokes talking about how the U.S. government is doing enough to fight terrorism, but Putin, Putin does enough. Putin's strong. Right. If only the U.S. and Russia could work together and be, you know, be strong like Putin. Mm. And many of those same people who you see getting into that kind of like uh, uh, Russophilia mm -hmm. uh, through that content, many of them later went on to become very, very far right-wing nationalist supporters of uh, certain far right-wing nationalist parties that have recently had some political success in the United States mm -hmm. um, and in operations that wound up being directly connected back to Russian intelligence. So when people talk about, you know, what happened in the United States in 2016, a lot of people talk about, you know, the influence on social media going back three years. I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk about what they were typing in 2014 or 2013. I want to talk about what they were typing in 2006, in 2008. Right. I want to talk about the conversations in those message boards about how many people they must have had deputized running those operations and how all of it ties into that same ideology. You know, I want to talk about uh, videos like the Serbia Strong with portraying a war criminal playing the accordion and how that was used in some way to tie into America being weak and Russia being strong when it comes to fighting terrorism right. using nationalism. Well, funny thing with that, actually with that idea is you can look at some of the operations that Russia is doing right now in Ukraine, even what they did in 2014 in Ukraine. Some people, there's evidence that they did it in Georgia in 2008. And yeah. obviously, a lot of these operations also were done during the Cold War. Heck, even some people try to claim that um, they learned it from the Mongols, just with uh, just the Mongols did without all the technology. Like, a lot of the, a lot, they, some people claim that a lot of the tactics that Russia does are the same that the Mongols did for disinformation campaign on there when they went through uh, Eurasia differences is the means to achieve those objectives. It's easy to forget that Russia's had one of the oldest continuing intelligence organizations yeah. on European soil. I mean, yes, they've gone under different names, but they have had an organized, legitimate um, inter in international and domestic police and intelligence force since roughly the 1500s. Um, I was going to say, we're like Peter the Great. It was no, a Oh, started at, Oh, okay. And they, they called him Ivan the Terrible because he had these secret police that would drag people out of their homes if they were opposition to the government. Um, you know, keeping up a nice Russian tradition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas trees and everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's... But no, I mean, I blame the Mongols for the Russian mentality. That's who I am, I am blaming. But, um, I mean... I don't know. It's like when you look at how everything is unfolding, like um, as Aubrey brought up earlier, like we've seen this before, um, just on a different side of the Eurasian plane. But um, so this, this is just, you know, part two, bigger, better, and cut. Literally, literally, no, literally. Go ahead, Aubrey. And I, I find it ironic, like the the guy you mentioned. Uh, who was training the GRU, and he's this big political. He's this this political figure in Russia, and he's, he's very far right. And then, 
you know, over in Ukraine in 2014, you know, with all the disinformation that was happening before the invasion, and the Russian side was just talking about, like, how there are Nazis on the Western side uh, just just waiting to, to, like, pounce into Russia, and it just scared everybody. Yeah. So and, I can actually speak to that exact phenomenon specifically, and I'd love to address that, because it's fascinating. Um, when you use the word Nazi in Russia, in Russian, to Russians about Russia, um, and you talk about the outside force that is Nazis, it, like, awakens something um, in Russians in general, in the Russian populace, in Russian individuals. You know, you hear the word Nazi, and they're just like, oh, my God, I'm going to kill that person. I'm going to kill that Nazi. I'm going to take him out. I'm going to stop him. You know, Red Army Heritage, let's go. We're going to, get, we're going to take him out. And that's great. You know, very cool to be that um, empowered against Nazis. And then a lot of the time, though, you also go to a lot of the same young Russian men who express that sentiment of, like, yeah, we're going to get those Nazis. We're going to kill those Nazis. And you say, hey, so the world isn't going to deal political state to you. And they say, well, of course, everyone would be all white. Everyone would look like me. Uh, we would get rid of, uh, you know, people who were Jewish. We'd get rid of people who were uh, Romani. And, uh, they don't say Romani. They use the much more nasty term about that. They, they basically they start saying all kinds of slurs. They start talking about how if they had the opportunity to, you know, kill a gay man for sport, they would love to do that. I, I have, you know, spoken to several young Russian men who seemed to be perfectly nice, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they were just like, yeah, if I ever met a gay man, I'd love to just torture and kill him. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, Jesus. The worst part is I actually thought I was on a date with one of these guys when that conversation started, so I found out that something very wrong in our communication almost immediately. Oh, wow. So, yeah, but that's, like, a very common sentiment among a lot of young Russian men. Mm -hmm. um, it's this kind of, like, hyper-masculine, um, you know, this need to create this perfect Russian state. That's Putin but, for you. He yeah, is I mean, the man. He is the man of it's, man. Like, that's... He is... Call, the long story short, Aubrey, is they're not calling themselves Nazis. Um, and they want to fight and kill the Nazis, but they're more than willing to embrace uh, I mean uh, that, the idea. And a lot of it ends up getting tied into this kind of older uh, Slavic-style paganism, which has this, there's a specific uh, Slavic pagan belief system which has been associated with a lot of neo-Nazi and far-right-wing groups yep. in Russia that have been very ethno-nationalist lately. Um, and it's this kind of growing trend in the Russian underground. Yeah. It's very stupid. It's, it's funny it's... because I think about, like, I, back in 2013, during the year of my in 2014, I was looking at all of those crazy news reports. And specifically, I was looking at uh, Russian news outlets, and specifically RT, Russia Today. And I remember the biggest thing, difference, if you look the Western media to the Russian media, was the Western media would say, oh, look at these, like, brave and freedom-loving protesters being beaten down by evil policemen. And then you'd look at the Russians' media, and they'd say, oh, look at these neo-Nazi fascists attacking these brave and courageous policemen that are trying to impose order. Like... I can so I just imagine. I mean, especially with all the articles, they would always see neo Nazis. Oh yeah, they would never. They know the power that is, uh, you know, behind that. And to be fair, to some extent, they weren't wrong. There were a lot of Ukrainian neo Nazis who were very against the Russian government, um, and they their perception was like, oh, you know, we're going to be the true. Um, and this is really ironic because everyone involved is like an East, a young Eastern European man. They're like, yeah, we're going to make sure that those, you know, those dirty Russian Slavs aren't able to come and take our beautiful, pure Ukrainian country. It's like, sir, 
I hate to break it to you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I don't want to say this. I don't want to say this. Like, you're, you're not that different. That's, you know, I mean, none of us are. You know, we're all like a big happy family living on Earth. But really, you two are very, it's close. It's really close, man. So, um, <laughs> you know, I found it funny just like how, yeah, obviously, there were a lot of you know, Nazi groups that were a part of my dad. And in fact, even to the point that the Ukraine government, even after the Euromaidan protest, had to crack down on these groups in Western Ukraine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And But what I find funny... Well, Azov Battalion is a great example. But obviously, oh, Azov Battalion, it's a battalion that's in Eastern Ukraine, not yeah. fighting against the Donbass militias. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, a terrible example of a terrible group who should not be getting any more military funding. Cough, cough, Capitol Hill, if you can hear me. Um, <laughs> they probably will hear me. <laughs> funny how... The Russian media, they were focusing in on these groups. They weren't paying attention to the groups that were moderates or anything like that. They were specifically looking at the neo-Nazi groups that were in the. Oh, you're talking about also like how what happened in the Middle East when we said that we were going to assist moderate Muslims. I've never heard what a moderate Muslim was in a day of my life until I heard that statement. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, and then they turned out to be. I see. So, <laughs> when you're trying to take any sort of like, um, you know, any kind of religious group or political group and say like, oh, this is this is a moderate version of that group. It's like, okay, what does that mean? Why are we connecting religion and politics? Like, we shouldn't be doing that. Like, you shouldn't be saying we're going to take this religious group and we are going to run the country with it because you know when you're when you're basing your entire government system off of the idea that there's someone up there who's just telling you the right things to do. We're putting power in the hands of a small number of people who are incredibly excited about having that power and cannot wait to abuse it to the fullest extent allowed. And let me tell you, they do not care about what the sins of that religion are as soon as they find out what $100 million looks like in cash. You know, don't look at that Come on, Daniel. Like, you know you would love that opportunity. If you could oh, just... If you could just... If you just get a call like, hey, my guy, you're a moderate... And you're so much of a moderate, we're going to give you so much money and assistance to help you create this state. And you're like, yes. What I would love more than anything else, and I'm saying this, uh, you know, at at mild risk of falling out of a window, very unfortunately. Oh, God. And And these would be on the first floor Uh, once that happens. Jesus, you trying to get me thrown out of a window, day? Is about garbage as I've ever seen out of like maybe a blue belt. I was I was a brown belt judo when I quit. Um, I've been doing it for about a decade, and his judo looks like he took six months of it and then just spent the rest of his life with everyone else telling him, "Yeah, sure, Mister Boone, your technique is great. You know, he's worse than that Detroit Urban Survival Training." Oh, (laughs) don't! I was watching videos on that. This is why I would be the one that would sit in the back if I was ever in a Stalin meeting. So I have a question for you guys, and I'll answer this myself as we go around. I would love to hear if you were a policymaker right now. Um, I'm assuming none of you are secretly a policymaker. No. If you, if you were a policymaker right now who had the opportunity to ask the intelligence community 
sorry, piece of intelligence on the Ukraine situation that you don't have right now, um, like a specific actionable piece of intelligence, um, what would you request? What would you ask them to look into? What would you ask? Oh, that's a good one. Oh. Let me let me take let me refill my glass for that one. That's a. Right, well, want to go first? Yeah, you go uh, first. Or right, go ahead, Aubrey. You go first. Oh. Uh, Put you on the spot. Man. Come on. <laughs> man. Bri- Brian, mean, why I, you look so mad? Like, right? <laughs> uh, Brian, can you go first? Brian just looks so <laughs> mad in the background. Like, why are you why are you so mad, Brian? He's like so deep in the thought. Uh, he's just like, if I just. information on, on the Donbass region. Quite frankly, I, I personally feel that the Crimea and Belarus entry points are smoke and mirrors. Um, you can build up and build up and build up in Belarus and Crimea, so you can focus your attention on there, when literally my main invading force could literally either be, could either go through the Donbass and get to the Dnieper, or I've, I've, I'm guessing if Putin will continue his um, ploy with asymmetric warfare, push the Donbass Donbas region, their, that militias, to initiate the, uh, the offset of the, the invasion uh, for plausible deniability and have Russian forces um, essentially reinforce um, those Donbass militias to the Dnieper. And based off of Ukrainian or Western uh, retaliations to that, then the Belarusian front or the Crimean front could be opened at a moment's notice. So I think that we're paying attention too much to the conventional buildups as our Western our Western mindset in war is still on that um, Clausewitz mentality when it comes to the usage of conventional um, weapons in the conduct of war. Where Russia, especially you know, after Grozomov, but historically speaking, understanding their their love for disinformation, asymmetric warfare, where it's much more in line, in my opinion, towards that of like a art of war, where it's mixed with brutality. But um, I think that because we look at asymmetric warfare as being beneath the threshold of conventional violence we don't know how to react or respond to it, which is why we're so clustered right now. We're like, oh, let's just keep on sending military equipment. You could send as much. It never works. It's always, oh, we're going to sanction them. It's like, listen, if they cared, those would have worked 10 years ago. (laughs) They don't care. (laughs) You know what, Mr. Putin? We're going to ban your secretary from coming. 
America. And he goes to his no. secretary. He's like, hey, you want to go to America? His secretary's like, I've never considered it. He's like, <laughs> he's like oh, okay, you can't go. They can't go anymore. Okay, oh. Anyway, now on to Georgia. What's even funnier with the sanctions idea is they're like, you have the government right now that's saying, oh, we have so many sanctions planned for them. Like, we are going to, I've never seen sanctions like this. And I'm thinking to myself, well, Russia since 2014 has been making many plans to capture sanctions to the point yeah. that, like, most of their foreign currency reserves right now are euros or not US yeah. dollars, yeah. which is what those sanctions would be affecting. Yes, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, at this point, what can you do? Like, tell, tell Putin and his buddies, oh, you can't go skiing anymore. Sorry. I'm, like, I'm sorry, I'll just go yeah. to Siberia. <laughs> the thing that will actually convince, I guess, before Dan says his big reveal of his answer, I think the only thing that's going to convince Putin to not do what he wants to do is if we, if there is a guarantee that U.S. troops will be sent in to combat in Ukraine, that will be one of the... We're not going to do that. And what's even more concerning is the fact that Russia also owns 53% of the Arctic. They've already put military bases, installations, and facilities in the Arctic. A lot of their submarines... Russia has a vested interest in promoting climate change. Um, They want this shit to melt. (laughs) 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 <laughs> like that's like, you're a climate change activist, and I'm like, you know, you are you are amazing. I love you. You are doing so much important stuff right now. You're doing incredible activism. Um, and you know, they ask like, what sort of stuff I'm working on? I'm like, well, you know, I'm working on the Russia stuff. And they're like, but the world is, you know, the world is on fire. And I'm like, yeah, who do you think keeps starting the fires? You know, you can put most of the people responsible for climate change connected to. You can put most of the people responsible for the. Current COVID crisis in America, the um, massive, massive rift between groups of people in America right now and climate change on one Greyhound bus, and I guarantee you, <laughs> that a Greyhound bus, bus where a ticket is three dollars. That's <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, they need that permafrost, they need the Arctic and whatnot to melt so they can acquire those natural resources. I think what's also was funny though. With that CTSO deployments, and I didn't expect it. But if I remember correctly, didn't Armenia and Georgia also assist Russia? But yet, weren't they also trying to become NATO buddies? Armenia, I, I have a lot. Of- I think it was Georgia, not Armenia, that wanted to become part of the. Very bad for for the Armenian people with what they're going through. I mean, Erdogan has been awful. He always looks mad. Like real, real atrocities perpetrated against the Armenian people. The problem with Armenia right now, like you just said, I think you said Savage. Um, in 2018, since 2018, they've been trying to get a little bit closer and closer with the uh, with the U.S. Right. The problem is, um, the problem is, Russia has about six thousand troops lying in wait in Armenia. Any problem that happens. As well as the recent Nagorno-Karabakh yeah. war that happened in 2020, yeah, 2020, that has basically gotten rid of any window for Armenia to really do anything because Russia basically got a perfect stranglehold. They have these teachers in, yeah, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Russia is not good for Armenia, um, and they are just taking advantage of the... But 
But I mean, this is what Putin indicated, where you know he said that you know the greatest geopolitical disaster of the twentieth century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and I think he has made it. You have, to, you have to take that quote in its full context, and I'm not saying that you know the interpretation of it is always wrong, but I often see that quote taken in a context um, that is a little bit misleading because the context well, right. was, was the fact that he, in his view, all of these countries were you know working together, were collaborative. Right. Um, within the Soviet sphere, and then all of those countries were thrown into disarray and, to some extent, chaos. Right. In um, so his perspective of these countries becoming Westernized, it's sort of like the Dominion nationalism coming back in. You know, they're becoming, um, they're becoming degraded Western states. They're becoming democratic. They're becoming, um, you know, Vladislav Serkov said, uh, you inject freedom into a society, and the society is going to collapse. An overdose well, of freedom. It's funny, though, is I think Putin and Russia are trying to figure out ways to you saw that to your advantage. For example, you go to Azerbaijan. One of the reasons why Russia did not intervene sooner or do anything in Armenia and Azerbaijan during the Nagorno-Karabakh war recently was because they viewed Azerbaijan as the model alternative for what a Soviet puppet state could be. Basically, they have a degree of independence but they still have to at least be willing to work with Russia on almost a whole scale. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and I think they're trying to figure out how to use that for other countries, and especially they might try to figure that out with Crimea right now. Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, it sort of goes back to that Tukidian ideal. They want these countries in their sphere of influence. They don't want to be responsible for funding them and taking care of them. They just want to, you know, I think the most they want is to control their power supply and to be able to send troops in and arm them yep. to cover up whenever they want to. Um, okay. And as far beyond that, they're like, you're on your own. Take care of yourself. Get your own act together. Uh, we'll handle the rest. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. I mean, like I said, going, just going back to the Donbass, they don't want to annex the Donbass region. They don't. It's just, they, just want to, they, they, they don't want to get Russia in. They just want to get NATO out. Right. Um, and they're willing to kill and destroy and burn as many men, women, and children as they need to make that happen. Um, That's that Mongol mentality. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I mean, going, you, you go back to Serverov's book, which I, again, highly recommend, um, even if it is a little bit outdated. He goes into a whole section talking about the torture techniques that they were trained in the Spetsnaz. And, um, you know, I read an article very, very recently from some guys in Wagner who said that the U.S. is not ready for a confrontation with Russian forces. Because when they capture our people, life will be better for them in Russian captivity than it was in Russia. Mm -hmm. When we capture their people, we will break them. We have a guy, you know, this is a quote from the article that I'm thinking of. It was in uh, Bellingcat. It says, we have a guy who specializes in removing eyeballs while the patient is alive and conscious in such a way that convinces them they should start talking. Um, and he says, yeah, and that's just some guy who they have. And they got, like, a lot of some guys. You know, the capability to have some guy who's just, I guess, really handy with a caviar spoon or something. Yeah. Um, pretty messed up. Uh, you know, I might share the, uh, what, my, what my intelligence request would be if I could request anything right now as a policymaker. Yeah? I want to know where Vladislav Surkov is right now and what he's doing. Because early last year, he allegedly was let go by the president's administration.
administration. Um, now, if you recall historically, every single time Vladislav Serkov has been let go by the president's administration in the past, the media reported on it by saying, oh, the gray cardinal's gone, the guy who you know, ran Putinism is suddenly out the window, he's gone away, he's no longer in the picture. He's taken a short vacation, in some cases he's taken a holiday with the president of Chechnya, in other cases he's done other activities, and then he's come back in and been put in charge of something else, very, very secretive, that did not get revealed to the West until usually a couple of years later. Um, a great example is the first time he was ousted in 2012, the next time he came into power, he was put in charge of figuring out the Ukraine situation, and some insider sources have actually suggested that he was the one who pushed Vladimir Putin initially to invade Ukraine um, during a sort of hectic, frenzied, late-night exchange that they had. He sort of pushed, like, you have to go into Ukraine, you have to take it now. Um, so there is a significant body of evidence that Serkov has been behind Ukrainian incursions in the past, and that he, you know, I mean, if you look at the, the, the Serkov emails that were leaked thanks to a significant hack a couple of years ago, they revealed that he was very, very heavily driving and overseeing the Ukrainian operation. Um, and much of what he was doing, in fact, was saying, okay, you know, this guy who's leading our own rebel force is not doing the work anymore, so have somebody kill him, and we'll put somebody else in. You know, they'd, they'd assassinate their own guys in order to make sure that they kept them loyal. Um, which doesn't make sense, unless I guess you're on the ground. But uh, Serkov, he, you know, once he sort of, you know, created the United Russia Party, once he worked with Putin to make him the Putin that he is today from a political standpoint, because before that he was pretty much just a KGB desk job mm -hmm. with a little bit of experience running the reprogramming terror groups. Um, you know, he turned him into a celebrity, a political figure, a powerhouse, um, that was, you know, that wasn't Putinism, that was Serkovism. And he created controlled democracy within their country. And, and then he exported it to, you know, roughly 37 European countries in the United States. Um, you know, he worked in, uh, he worked in Ukraine. The time frame that he was there suggests that he may have been there around the same time working with Paul Manafort, before he wound up working for the uh, Trump campaign. Um, so there's a lot of questions that I have about Serkov, what he's doing now, why he has just disappeared, and, you know, I mean, he's young, he's still, like, politically active, politically viable. Um, I imagine he took a short vacation, and then this stuff started up again, he is probably right deep in there. So whatever he's sending emails about, whatever he's talking about, I think that's where we find the answer to what's going to happen next with Ukraine. Well, actually, now I have a question for you, involving Serkov. Um, but for when, as we talked earlier, when Putin finally kicks the bucket, do you think he would be the successor, or do you think someone else would be the successor? Shoigu! Strykov is too close to Putin in age, um, and he likes being a great partner. Um, Sergei Shoigu is who I got my bets on. Sorry? I'm going with Shoigu, the current... Uh, Shoigu is beloved by the people. He has that advantage. But the problem with Shoigu is the whole, um, you know, military general thing. So what we could genuinely be looking at uh, towards the end of Putin's regime is potential for a, you know, because Putin, I don't think Putin would pick Shoigu. I think that Shoigu will pick himself. And I, think I was about to say that. Shoigu don't need Putin. Think, you know, <laughs> somebody else and say, this is going to be my successor. And then suddenly you have 
the entire political infrastructure of Russia internally, secretly, crumbling because half of them are saying, I was relying on Putin to protect me. If he's stepping down, who's going to protect me now? From international sanctions, from international problems, who's going to protect my wealth? Who's going to protect me? You know, who's going to provide security forces so I don't get murdered by my own countrymen when they find out the things that I'll come through, justifiably? Um, no, sorry, justifiably meaning the politician getting murdered, not justifiably that he's put the thing. Just to clarify. Um, but um, Shoigu, I think, would pick himself. Serkov, I think, would wait back and see who is winning and then join their side. That's always been his tactic. Um, you know, I mean, he allegedly, uh, some individuals have claimed that he has training from the special services dating back to the 70s and 80s. Uh, and then he spent some time in the Moscow Theater School. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with how close uh, the theater in Moscow specifically. It's a very interesting thing because the theater in Moscow specifically does tie in a lot to Russian politics in ways that are a little bit complicated, I think, for Westerners, including myself, to fully grasp and understand. Uh, but it's sort of like, you know, Hollywood for the U.S. and how Hollywood sort of ties into the political moods of the United States and the government of the United States. For Russia, they don't have their Hollywood, they have the Moscow theater circuit. Um, so he got very involved in the theater circuit over there. He was a PR guy in the 90s, which, you know, saying you were a PR guy in the 90s in Russia is like saying that you were a parachuter in 1944 in the United States. Um, people just assume that you've done some shit. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so he did that. And then right after that, he was appointed by Yeltsin because uh, he was close friends with Yeltsin, and he was close friends with the guy who created RT. He was close friends who has been assassinated. By the way, he was killed in the United States a couple years ago. He was close friends with um, the gentleman who was the first Russian billionaire who was uh, jailed and has mm -hmm. since had several issues. Um, there was actually a whole network of Serkov. Yeah, yep, Benizhovsky. He was associated with Benizhovsky's network, um, and Benishovsky's network put him in power because they thought, here's a young guy, he's smart, he's fast, he'll help get Russia back on track. They hooked him up with Putin, and the rest is history because almost everyone else in that network, literally history, everyone else in that network has since been assassinated in Europe or the United States, except for one individual who I'm not going to name because I do occasionally like to reach out to him for a nice chat, and I would like to continue doing that. <laughs> well... Oh, Jesus, it's been an hour and 18 minutes. <laughs> I just looked over. I you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make this as like a frequent like part of uh, the podcast. I'd be bored sometimes talking by myself to myself, listening to myself. I think that all of us would love to uh, come on and participate more often. This is great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, literally, like, let's make it happen. Um, this is, I don't know, I've been trying to get more people on. So, you three are the first in the year. So, pat yourselves on the back. It's great because I run a, um, uh, for lack of a better word, a D&D group, a tabletop thing. It does a lot of geopolitical stuff. And now I can give you guys most of the really scary stuff. Uh, instead of playing it on them, because most of them they just log in. They're like, "What are we gonna do for fun today?" And I'm like, "We're gonna do World War Three." And they're like, "Cool, I hate that." <laughs> no, we'll. Shout we'll, out to those guys because I think they're probably gonna be giving us a listen pretty soon. Probably, no. We even, 
mean, so speaking about the podcast, maybe today we've hit 2,608 downloads. Wow. Um, That's sick as hell. And we are um, in the top 20 in the world um, through a rank six for global security and industry. So and... this will be seen, okay? Like, I had someone from like Aruba. I was like, I didn't know you had Wi Fi. Like, I didn't even. <laughs> I did it. The. Don't tell me that. Like, that. <laughs> this means if he's thrown out the window, we're next. I, 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 would say, I would say that, you know, maybe knowing now the reach of this program, I kind of wish I held my tongue, but frankly, Putin and his entire administrative government can kiss my ass. So. Yeah, well, hey, you do what you got to do. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We are definitely going to have to do a part two to this. Um, it's a must. And a three, and a four, and a five, and a six. Give it a week or two, and we can talk about what Russian invasion forces are doing inside Ukraine, how it's going, how the supply chains are working out. Then yeah. we hear about the invasion and just predict what will happen next. I'm and telling you. Give it, give it a month or two after that, we can start talking about Taiwan. Heavy topics. Heavy topics. I'm telling you, I'm trying to get to three thousand downloads, and I think honestly, from this group, is going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, it's we've had some. I don't know. Can I share my? Let me see if I can just really quickly, um, if I can. I can share my screen, okay. I don't know which screen you're going to see. Um, screen, damn it. Can you see it? Brian is, Brian is getting a bit excited because I just shared with him uh, the magic of uh, bacon-flavored bourbon. <laughs> You've just now discovered that, my friend. Sir, you live under a rock. I'm sorry, I'm a beer guy. What can I say? <laughs> That's your problem. See, here are the countries that have listened. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, I, guess, I guess it's tape over our mouths for the next like, four episodes. <laughs> He's like, oh. Uh, um, I, gotta, I gotta use one of those. Uh, this isn't on video, right? So no, it's not. I, I, I was just going to say, I hope you enjoy being censored. <laughs> China doesn't give a damn about what I say. So if we get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, would like to, I would like to add, while we're, while we're mentioning uh, political figures who can get in line to kiss my ass, uh, <laughs> Oh God! Don't are you really bringing up the Ayatollah? <laughs> I mean, I have three downloads from Iran, so he's one of them. I'm pretty sure that he's. I'm telling you, like I did an episode actually on Syria once, and the day I posted it. I got a I got a view from Turkey. I was like, "Oh Jesus!" Oh, Erdogan, was Erdogan was like, "What that boy say?" <laughs> Horrible. I don't want no. As a disclaimer, Erdogan, wherever you are, and the Ayatollah and Vladimir Vladimirovich, Putin, and Xi Jinping, and all the other people that are listening, 
Oh, no, I didn't say that. I, as part of the representative of Samaj Madaw, I did not say that. That was Danielle over there. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, we're definitely going to do this again. Um, just let me know your schedules and then we can get together. Um, this was fun. Um, this will literally be, it's like, I'm not just going to, I'm not going to call this like World War Putin anymore. Cause this is just went from like talking about Russia and Ukraine towards just like overall, like, I don't even know. Like I have to figure out what to call this because this is. To, uh, I'm happy to oblige. I, I wrote a paper recently talking about how uh, human intelligence can evolve for the Generation Z, and I called it TikTok, Tinder, Sol Soldier Spy. So TikTok really is news, but <laughs> um, yeah, no, I would need names for this. Um, but I got you. Got you. with that being said, I'm going to end it here. And we will definitely do a part two and 10 and 32 um, and everything in between. And yeah, uh, thank you all for spending damn near an hour and 30 minutes. <laughs> Just randomly going from topic to topic to topic to topic back to a particular topic down to what if scenarios. But you know, that's the beauty of geopolitics where you just, you just go into a rabbit hole and just yeah. talk. So with that, um, until next time.